Let's open our Bibles to the book of Colossians chapter 3 where we've been now for some time. Just a wonderful place for us to stop and meditate as a church. We'll be there again this morning in chapter 3, specifically in verse 13. I was thinking this week, it was back in the fall of 2017 that I was officially presented with the wonderful and yet daunting opportunity of planting a church. Church planting had been attractive to me for the better part of a decade, but the seriousness of the decision began to to come into full focus as my wife and I discussed the issue that night after the elders graciously asked me to pray about the possibility. But it didn't take long, honestly, for us to, to realize that this is exactly what God would have us do, and we have never looked back since. It has been nothing but a wonderful joy for us to do so. It's interesting, though, you, you get a wide range of reactions from people when you say that you're going to church plant. Typically, people are very excited for you on the outside, but very excited to not do it themselves, right? It's, it's a daunting task. It's kind of like when someone comes to you and maybe says they've been called to the mission field, and they're going to some faraway place away from all the comforts that we're used to, and you're genuinely thrilled for them and excited even to support them, but perhaps secretly inside, kind of glad you're not the one going. But the truth is, I would recommend church planning to anyone. It is a great opportunity. And I think for, for me, there are many things I could mention that have been a blessing, but one at the top of the list has been to see all of you not only grow in your love for Christ, but in your love for one another, to see the fellowship that you have, the genuine desire that you have to be together. In fact, I love that it takes five or ten minutes for everyone to get seated after I start the service because you love to talk with each other. And we have to literally tell you to leave the church uh, when, it's time, when our rental time is up because you don't want to leave. You want to be together. That's a, a good and healthy thing for a church, and it's something that we shouldn't ever take for granted. But it does raise the question... How do we maintain that kind of love for one another and fellowship with one another in the years to come? What will it take for North Lake Bible Church to still be lingering after service and wanting to be together in five years, in 10 years, in 20 years, or 50 years? The answer to that question is found in the admonition that Paul gives us in Colossians chapter 3. In fact, as we learn this process of putting off and renewing our minds and putting on righteousness, we are to practice these things towards one another. In fact, in context, the primary application that Paul is driving at is how we treat each other in the church, how we build relationships with one another in the local body. You remember if you've been here with us, we've been looking at that process of change. It's a simple process to understand, but at times can be very difficult to put into practice. Three easy steps, put off sin, renew your mind with truth, and put on righteousness. We've been looking now at chapter 3 for a while. The first 17 verses break down into the categories you see there, the Christian perspective, then the Christian life. And the Christian life revolves around mortifying sin, putting sin to death, and pursuing righteousness. Let's read together the section we've been in now for the last few weeks, beginning in verse 12. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. 
Paul writes, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. We've been looking at one key theme beginning in verse 5, and we'll continue to look at that theme through verse 17, which is every Christian must proactively put sin to death and pursue righteousness. As we just read in verse 12, Paul gives these three descriptions of who we are in Christ that we looked at a few weeks ago, and I want to just remind you of these because we have to keep them in mind as we continue on in our text. Paul describes the Christian as those who have been chosen of God, who were holy or set apart unto God, and who are beloved, those who are the recipients of the love of God. In fact, those descriptions of what Christ has done in us are to be the motivating factor for us in obeying the command that's coming next. Because the command that he gives us then is to put on righteousness. In light of those things, who we are in Christ, we're to live in accordance with who we are in Christ by putting on righteousness. And last week we looked specifically at five virtues that we are to put on, that we're to clothe ourselves in as Christians. They are heartfelt compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. These are the clothes of the heart of a true believer. These are the things that we're to be putting on towards one another in the church. But how do we know if we're doing a good job? How do we know if we're really growing in our relationships with one another and if we're really putting on these virtues that Paul commands of us? Well, there are some fruits that are produced in the way we treat other people if we're putting on the virtues of verse 12. And that's what Paul turns his attention to in verse 13. It's as if he's going to apply now verse 12. If you're faithfully putting on those five virtues then you will bear certain fruits. And there are two particular fruits we'll look at this morning. Fruit number one is a church that bears. A church that bears. Look at verse 13. Bearing with one another. Bearing with one another. Put on these five virtues, and the first fruit that will come from that activity is that we will bear with one another. If you're putting on gentleness and humility and patience towards other brothers and sisters in Christ, then you will bear with their weaknesses. This is a key essential ingredient 
to a healthy church, if we're to have a vibrant life together as a church, living together in true community and fellowship, we must be a church that bears each other well. To bear with one another means we tolerate one another. We put up with one another even when it's difficult to do so, especially when it's difficult to do so. Anyone can get along with people that are really easy to get along, that think the way you think and act the way that you act and always respond the way that you respond. This is a call for us to bear with one another when we differ. Paul gives the same instruction in a slightly different way in the parallel passage in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4 verses 1 to 3 says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. He's saying, live out your call to salvation and do it this way, verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Again, a heart that's clothed with the virtues of verse 12 will be a person who bears with and tolerates the weaknesses of others in the church. Now, this is such a practical instruction for us. It's it's one that every local church has to understand and take seriously and put into practice if we're to be the kind of church that Christ intends for us to be. But what exactly are the kinds of things that we will regularly have to bear? What, What are the areas in which we have to show tolerance for one another? Well, there are two that I want to draw to your attention, two categories. The first reason that we would, might need to show tolerance to someone in the church is obvious. Sin. Sin. We're to put on the quality of long-suffering with one another when we're sinned against. After all, God bears with us on a daily basis. He is continually bearing with us as we continue to sin against him and seek his forgiveness. Remember that God characterizes himself. He describes himself as being one who's slow to anger. This is in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, when Moses asks to see God. In verse 6, it says, Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. This is our God. Therefore, when others sin against us in the church, we're to be imitators of God and to be long-suffering and slow to anger and to bear with them as God bears with us. Bearing with one another means that we're willing to stand under the weight of the pressure that's put on a relationship with another person when there's sin. It means we don't run from one another when things get difficult or awkward between us. We're committed as brothers and sisters in Christ to bear with one another in humility, recognizing that today it's me having to bear with your weaknesses, but tomorrow it may very well be you having to bear with mine. And so we bear with one another in patience. But this idea of bearing... It's not only one that we have to keep in mind when there's sin involved in our relationships, but but something even more basic than that. The second reason that we might often have to tolerate or show tolerance to one another in the church is personal differences. 
personal differences. Not necessarily sin. We're just different. Remember that God is redeeming a people for himself from every nation, tribe, and tongue. That is all kinds of different people from every corner of the globe. And he's bringing them all into one body of of believers. We talked about this in Colossians chapter 3, verse 11, where it says this is a renewal that, that God is doing within his people in which there's no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man. But Christ is all and in all. Now, the practical outworking of that reality is that in the church, we have this conglomerate of people that are very different from one another, with different backgrounds, different strengths and weaknesses, different preferences, and certainly different personalities. In addition to that, if a church is healthy and it's serious about the Great Commission, then there should be a mixture of of Christians that are different at different levels of maturity. We should have brand new believers. We should have believers that are, that are maturing in Christ. And we should have believers that are seasoned saints, that are mature in their faith. Not perfect, but have grown to a level of being able to pour into others. Now all of that is wonderful and exciting, isn't it? To think about this group of people coming together. But the flip side of that is that there will be plenty of opportunities for us to rub each other the wrong way. When you bring all of these people together that in reality, maybe in their normal course of life, would not particularly choose to be together, but are together in unity because of Christ, then there will be ample opportunity to bear with one another. We have to expect that. We're going to have to show tolerance for one another. What are some of those personal differences that may commonly raise their head in our relationships. I'm just going to mention a couple. They're pretty obvious, I think. One would be issues of conscience. Has COVID given us opportunities to bear with one another? I think it has. Masks, no masks. Distance, don't distance. Shake hands, don't shake hands. Now it's vaccines. Take them, don't take them. There's always the common things, parenting styles, entertainment choices, dietary choices, different views on medicine and alternative medicine, politics. These are things in which we have to bear with one another. We have to tolerate one another's differences in these areas and refuse to be divided over these things. This is where the rubber meets the road. Sometimes it's something simple. It's just preferences in humor. Or a person thinks a certain kind of humor is funny and You don't really think it's funny. It's not sinful. You just don't enjoy it. And so you don't necessarily want to spend your Friday evenings with that person. Sometimes it's generational or cultural differences. How late or early a person should leave your home after an event. How loud the music should be in the church. What styles of clothing are appropriate at this event versus that. And how much warning you should give before you show up at someone's house. These are just simple examples in which we differ in our opinions and yet we can rub each other the wrong way and in those instances, Paul says, bear with one another. Bear with one another. Put on the virtues of verse 12 and in humility, tolerate one another. Why, ultimately? For the sake of Christ. For the sake of Christ. We don't choose who's in the body of Christ. That's Christ's prerogative. 
He saves whom he saves, but we are to love and to care for every single soul that he brings into the church. We're to bear with them all. How can we bask in God's grace towards us and not extend that grace to one another? These days, I don't have much opportunity for this particular hobby, but growing up, I loved horses and horseback riding. I had a a family friend that owned a farm just outside of town, and they gave me my own key to the gate so I could go and ride the horses whenever I wanted. It was very kind of them. And on this farm, they had two horses. One was named Charlie, and Charlie was the type of horse that everyone dreams of having for their kids. He was fairly old. It's very tame. You could literally put a monkey on his back with a machine gun and he would fall asleep. He was, he was bulletproof. But then there was Snowball. Now, Snowball was actually a pony, as you might expect. He was white. And nobody wanted to ride Snowball. It was because Snowball had a very honorary personality and he would frequently buck when you were on him. So everyone just left Snowball alone. But as I advanced in my skills as a horseman, half-dead Charlie just wasn't enough for me anymore. I needed more of a thrill. So I determined I was going to conquer Snowball. The first time I got on him, I noticed that immediately he was tense and his ears were pinned back. If you've never been around horses, that's a bad sign. You always know what a horse is thinking by their ears. His his, His ears are pinned straight back. And sure enough, as soon as I gently nudged him with my feet to go forward, he immediately began to buck. But I was bound and determined. I was going to figure out the the way to ride this little pony named Snowball. And so over time, as I worked with him, I began to notice that if I simply gave him verbal cues instead of kicking him with my feet, he was fine. He would take me anywhere I wanted to go at any speed I wanted to go. In fact, he ran a lot faster than Charlie, and he was a lot more fun to ride. In the end, he just really didn't like to be kicked. Once I learned that, hey, if I just don't kick him with my feet, we can have a great time together, life was wonderful. The riddle was solved. But you know, when it comes to dealing with people in the church, too often our tendency is to give up on relationships at the very moment of a hint of difficulty. At the very moment of awkwardness, we tend to approach people in the way that seems most natural to us, and when we don't get the response that we are anticipating, we simply just move on to another relationship, one that's a little easier, one that takes less effort. But after we've come to this text today, we see that that's just completely unacceptable. It's inadequate in our treatment of one another. Paul's saying when you come into an awkward or difficult situation with another person in the church, you need to bear with them, refuse to give up, determine that as far as it depends on you, you're going to be in fellowship with that person. And what you'll find is if you'll simply bear with people long enough, you will find things within them that you truly appreciate. If they're true believers, there is is some gift that God has given them that you will truly appreciate, and guess what? Even learn from. If we would just take the time to bear with one another. I fear that we're losing the art and even the awareness of this quality of bearing with one another in evangelicalism, and perhaps especially in our reformed corner of the Christian world. I would encourage you to use discernment 
with discernment ministries. Let me explain what I mean. Many of the discernment ministries, ministries designed to call out error that we have today, began with a solid foundation, with the goal of highlighting things that were truly a threat to the church, a threat to the gospel. They focused on warning us about movements such as the prosperity gospel or the social gospel of the emergent church or the antinomianism of the cross-centered sanctification movement. These were helpful. They were needed warnings for the church. But in recent days, I've become increasingly concerned that it seems that some of these ministries have run out of things to talk about on the larger horizon, and so they've resorted to nitpicking like-minded brothers and sisters over issues that are, are, at, are at best secondary, if not tertiary, issues. And I fear that it's creating a culture within our reform movement of publicly calling out one another and assuming the worst of one another over issues that biblically never should divide us. At times, it, it almost seems that if a pastor accidentally gives the wrong reference for a scripture, that he's going to show up in the headlines of one of these ministries. And that kind of hypercritical approach to Christianity filters into the local church and it cripples our ability to bear with one another and to tolerate one another in our weaknesses to the point that if another brother or sister who may have only been in, the, in, in Christ for six months dares to mention a book they read or uses a, a, a theological term that they don't fully understand in the wrong way, we pounce on them immediately as if they've denied the Trinity. We don't bear with one another. Brothers and sisters, if, if North Lake Bible Church is to be a, the kind of a fellowship that Christ intends for us, we have to bear with one another. We have to tolerate one another in love. And yes, there are times, important times, for us to come alongside, for us to correct, for us to say, hey, brother, let me, let me tell you something about this or that that you may not yet know. But even then, we're to do it in a spirit of bearing with one another, in a spirit of charity, in a spirit of humility, in a spirit of, of, of seeking to edify that brother or sister to build them up and not to tear them down. I pray that we will be a church that bears one another well. Now let me just say that many of the popular discernment ministries out there led by men that I love and respect. And I'm not seeking to, to ask you to give a wholesale boycott to every discernment ministry. That's not what I'm saying. But I would say this. If you're noticing that by listening to a certain podcast or, or reading certain blogs that it's causing you to lose your patience with other believers and to take on a hypercritical view of others where you just have a short fuse to pounce on people at, the, at a moment's notice... Perhaps it's time to take a break. Perhaps it's time to step away for a time from that particular podcast or voice. But there's a second fruit that is a cousin to bearing with one another that's essential for us to have if we're to have a vibrant, unified body at North Lake Bible Church. It's here again in verse 13. Not only are we to bear with one another, but we're to be fruit number two, a church that forgives. A church that forgives. Verse 13, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. And forgiving each other. The word forgive is to show oneself gracious by forgiving wrongdoing. It's, the word, the Greek word actually has the same root as the word for grace. 
It's a display of grace towards another person to show forgiveness. It's an extension of grace. And after all, what is grace? Grace is unmerited favor extended to those who deserve the opposite. They don't deserve it. That's the whole point of forgiveness. If someone has sinned against you in some way, that's why the forgiveness is is needed. So Paul says if we're a church, if we're individuals who are putting on the virtues of verse 12, then we must be a church who bears the fruit of forgiveness towards one another. Notice he says specifically forgiving each other. Again, highlighting the context that this is for the local church. He's speaking to the church of Colossae. And so we can apply it here as a local church. We are to be forgiving each other. So each other means we've got to look around the room. Each other is right here. This is each other. Forgiving each other at North Lake Bible Church. Obviously, we're to extend forgiveness to others as well. But in context, this is how we're to live in the church. Forgiveness is a key component of any healthy body. And it's interesting because we we hear those words, forgiving one another, and sometimes we miss the obvious implication. By bringing up this need for forgiveness, Paul is letting us in on the secret. You're going to have opportunities to extend forgiveness. To say it more clearly, people are going to sin against you in the church. People are going to sin against you in this church. And if you leave this church to go find another church where people don't sin against you, you will be disappointed. He's saying the the cure, the key in the church to maintaining a body of believers who are unified in Christ is forgiveness. To forgive one another when we sin against each other. No church, no matter how healthy its doctrine or leadership, is without sin. None. There are churches, by God's grace, who have matured, perhaps, in their quickness to forgive and to repent. We pray that that would be the case here. But if we're looking to get to a place where we never step on each other's toes, then we will be sadly disappointed. That's what it will be like in Christ's kingdom when we are made fully new and perfect. But who of us exactly is bound to extend this forgiveness? Look back at the text, verse 13. Forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone. Notice those words, whoever and anyone. Those are very inclusive words, aren't they? That means that on both sides of the coin, all of us are included. Everyone is to extend forgiveness, and everyone is someone that you should see as a person that needs your forgiveness if they sin against you. There's no category of people in the church that, well, if they sin against me, I'm not forgiving them. And notice he says, whoever has a complaint. That is, someone has, has sinned against you in some way, and so there is, is forgiveness needed. But also the way that he says it, it almost insinuates that the person may not even know that they've sinned against you in this way says, whoever has a complaint, that is the, the person that's been offended has the complaint, but the person that needs forgiveness may not even be aware. Paul says, forgiving one another. Whoever has a complaint against anyone. Universally in the church. 
In addition to that, by not giving us a specified list of potential complaints that we might have against one another, Paul is including any kind of offense, whatever it may be. Whoever has a complaint, whatever it may be. The response, the disposition towards that person, forgiveness. Willingness and ready to forgive. Now, at this point, Paul's instruction is not particularly shocking or unexpected. If you've been in church for any length of time, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you understand, hopefully, that we're to be those who forgive. And perhaps you may even be here and you're thinking, while I'm not perfect at forgiveness, I'm a pretty good forgiver. When I look at myself, I mean, over the years. But as he often does, Paul adds a clarifying statement that hits us right between the eyes here. Because look back at the text. He doesn't just tell us to forgive. He gives us this standard for our forgiveness. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Those words, just as, are weighty. He means in the same way. In the same way that you and I have been forgiven in Christ, in that way, forgive one another. In the same way as the Lord forgave you. That, those words, when I read that, they, they should have a, a holy heaviness that sit on us. Just as the Lord forgave you. That's how you should forgive. It must match the forgiveness that's come to us in the person of Christ. The forgiveness of Jesus then becomes the motivation for forgiveness and the standard for forgiveness. It motivates us to extend forgiveness and it becomes the standard by which our forgiveness should be tested. It's right and fitting for us as as people who have received forgiveness from God in Christ to be extending that kind of forgiveness in and through Christ as well. Paul is saying you cannot be content to be a continual recipient of God's grace to you in his forgiveness and withhold that same forgiveness from your brothers in Christ. And just to drive home the point, he adds the the phrase at the end, so also should you. It would have been enough just to say, just as the Lord forgave you, but it's like he he wants to, to bracket it to make it clear, I'm applying this to you, all of you, just as and so also should you. That you there is plural, by the way. It means all of you. All of you should extend this kind of forgiveness to others in the church. And if you think about it, if we really understand what Christ has done for us in forgiving us of our sins and washing us and making us new, it should produce a humility within us that's eager and ready to extend forgiveness to those who sin against us. Remember Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32 says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. In his ministry, Jesus gave a powerful illustration in his teaching on just how important it is for us to be a people who extend the same forgiveness that God has extended to us. And he lets us in on on a little bit of a secret, he pulls back the curtain of how God thinks about those who have received his forgiveness and yet withhold it from others. 
I want to read this to you from Matthew chapter 18. And it's a longer text than we might normally read, but it's a wonderful illustration of the point that we've just seen. Verse 21 says, Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. And then he goes into this illustration. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he'd begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he didn't have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I'll repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what he owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported it to their Lord, the Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. It's a powerful illustration from the mouth of our, our Lord. And it's prompted, remember, by an innocent question from Peter. I love Peter. Reminds me of myself. Peter thinks he's being generous here, and he says, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven? After all, that's the number of perfection. It's pretty gracious. It's not just once or twice. Seven, that's a good number. Jesus says, not seven, 70 times seven. And of course, he doesn't mean for you to do the math and say, okay, there's the number, right? He's, it's hyperbole to say, Unlimited. And in case we, we, we don't catch what he means by that, he goes on to give the illustration. He says, let me tell you what I mean. This is what God's kingdom is like. And he gives this story. Now, to understand it, we have to know just a little bit about this context. Because understand that a typical day laborer at the time, each day would earn one denarius. That was a typical wage for one day's work. William Hendrickson explains that one talent was worth somewhere around 6,000 denarii. So 6,000 days of work for one talent. That means it would have taken this servant around 19 years to pay back just one talent if he was able to save all that he made every single day, which of course is impossible because he'd also have to eat and pay bills and other things. So even if he saved a generous portion of his daily salary, it could easily take him a hundred years to save just one talent. And what was his debt? Ten 
5,000 talents. This was an unfathomable debt. This is the kind of debt that there's no hope of, of, of reaching. You, you could work every day of your life and sell all of your possessions and be nowhere close to this debt. It's a crippling amount of debt. Jesus is intentionally using a sum that we can't fathom. The whole point is he couldn't have paid it even with his best efforts. And yet, the master in this story, who represents God, doesn't reduce the debt. He doesn't give him more time to pay the debt. What does he do? He cancels the debt. Paid in full. Just as if this wicked slave had paid it all. Now, what does this slave do with the generosity that God has given, or this man has given to him? He goes and he finds one of his fellow slaves who owes him a hundred denarii, which is about three to four months of wages. And he throws the man in debtor's prison until every last penny is paid. Now we look at that and we think, wow, what an unthinkable display of ingratitude. It's horrendous. But did you get Jesus' point? He's saying this is how God views us when we fail to extend forgiveness to one another. We are those who've been forgiven an incalculable debt, a debt you could never pay if you spent the rest of your life trying to be good and trying to follow even the law or whatever it is that you think might make you right before God, you could do that every day for the rest of your life and be nowhere close to this debt. Paul says that we must be those who clothe ourselves in compassion and humility in kindness and gentleness and patience And from the overflow of that, extend forgiveness just the way that God extended it towards us. Now, believers, while you think on that for a moment, I don't want to miss the opportunity to emphasize that there may be those with us this morning that are not in Christ. I want you to understand that if if you're here this morning and you've never come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, that that debt is still on the books You owe a debt to God that you could never repay, a debt of sin. Every single sin you've ever committed, God has seen it all. You may see yourself as a pretty good person, but understand, God doesn't see you that way. God sees you as you really are. He sees all your sin. He sees every motivation of your heart. He sees even the selfishness that has driven the best and most noblest decisions you've ever made. And in your lifetime, you've piled up a debt that you can't repay. But the good news is, God is good, and he is kind. And he is willing through his son, through the the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection, for all who would come in repentance and faith, turning to God through Jesus Christ to forgive the debt. Because Jesus Christ has paid it. He's lived the perfect life that we should have lived. And God says he will credit that perfect life to your account if you will humble yourself and repent and place your faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. That debt can be fully paid. 
Don't waste another day in rebellion against this good God, but come even this morning and repent. Believers, this morning it's important for us to test our own forgiveness against the forgiveness of this text. And to help us do that, I want to mention a couple of symptoms of inadequate forgiveness. Things that we're tempted to do to to pacify ourselves and to think that we've forgiven, but when we put it up against the standard of Christ's forgiveness, it pales in comparison. Let me just give you two symptoms of inadequate forgiveness. The first one is avoidance. Avoidance. Many times Christians will say something like this, well, I've forgiven them, but our relationship can't be what it was. After all, things get messy when there's sin between us. And we say the words, I forgive you, but then proceed to cut that person off. Suddenly they're just not invited to be with us anymore. Thank God that that's not the kind of forgiveness he's extended to us. Amen? The forgiveness that God extends to us in Christ is restorative. It actually results in our adoption. When when God forgives us in Christ, he draws us near. He doesn't keep us away. And so in order to mimic the kind of forgiveness that Christ has given to us, we are to forgive brothers and sisters that they might be brought back into relationship with us as a brother and sister should. Genuine forgiveness is to be immediate. Now let me just give a quick caveat that there are times because of the fallen world that we live in when forgiveness may be immediate, but it is legitimate for full restoration or trust to be earned over time. An example would be particularly in a marriage situation when there's been physical violence or there's been a pattern, a long-term pattern of of adultery or unfaithfulness that's been uncovered. Immediate forgiveness can be extended, but it may be wise for any kind of physical restoration to take time. But let's be honest. The majority of the sins committed against us are not in those categories. I think we're far too free with putting limitations on our forgiveness when the quality of forgiveness that Christ extends is immediate forgiveness and full restoration. That's to be the pattern in the church. There's a second symptom of inadequate forgiveness, and it is keeping records. Keeping records. Some Christians express free and total forgiveness, but secretly in their heart keep a tablet of records of sins against them. And the next time that person sins, it all comes rushing out. Remember what the psalmist says about the forgiveness that God extends towards his people. Psalm 103 verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. This is the quality of forgiveness that we're to give. Not an an outward uh, smile of forgiveness, but a heart that's holding on and seething in anger over those things. But we are to follow after the character of Christ and to cast it far from us as far as the east is from the west, never to be brought up again. With all those things in mind, it's important for us to simply apply these two fruits to our lives. If you're in Christ today and if you're a part of North Lake Bible Church, Paul is commanding us to do two things. Number one, bear with one another. Bear with one another. 
Ask yourself, are you long-suffering with your fellow believers here at North Lake Bible Church? Are you willing to show tolerance for the differences of personality and preference that we may have with one another? Or are you in the habit of only surrounding yourself with the type of people that make you feel the most comfortable, that are always the easiest to be around? Let's remember that as a body of believers, we're to be long-suffering. We're to bear with the weaknesses of one another in the name of Christ. And through that, Christ is honored. And secondly, we are to forgive one another. Forgive one another. Let me ask you, is there anyone in our church body whom you need to forgive? Is there anyone in the church whom you claim to have forgiven and yet you are currently avoiding them? or keeping a laundry list of their sins in mind. Let me encourage you this morning to follow the path of Christ, to offer free and full forgiveness. No strings attached, no records kept, simply restorative forgiveness. If we're going to be a church that still loves to hang around after service and be together, be in each other's homes and take our meals together and enjoy life together, 50 years from now, we've got to be a church that bears one another and forgives. I pray that we will become skilled at putting on the virtues of verse 12 and bear the fruits of verse 13. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for these powerful words as they remind us that we're not just to enjoy the salvation we received, we're to extend the fruits of that salvation to one another in the church. And God, I pray that you would help our church to be a church that bears with one another well. Help us even in our confrontation of sin with one another to do it in a way that shows genuine love and genuine care, not with pride or arrogance. God, help us to be quick to forgive, ready to forgive, living in a disposition of forgiveness towards one another a restorative forgiveness, the kind of restoration that happens between us and you through your son. May we experience that same kind of restoration in our relationships together, not because of us, but because we are both blood-bought people of God. Now we pray that these things would be a reality for us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.